All right. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, we are so uh, longing to be as glad as you mean for us to be in Christ. These, uh, this season of mystery where your presence, your person, you came to dwell among us. The word, the eternal word from the Father became flesh and dwelled among us so that we could see his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth and of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. Help us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for being bored. Help us to be glad. So would you use this gathering, these moments in your word to make us glad once again in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 9. And uh, as you turn there, one of the great tamers of our Christmas joy is the familiarity that breeds contempt. You guys know this, right? The the familiarity that breeds contempt. And so we might say something like, for unto us a... Oh, I got a big yell. Unto us a child is born. Golly, it's already been five minutes. Unto us a son is given. We've been here before and again. Here we are at Christmas. Yeah, 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 says the Christian. I've heard it a thousand times. Well, let me say two things to you if your heart is there this Christmas season. On the one hand, it's okay. Affections ebb and they flow. And if you're in an ebbing season, you're not abnormal. It doesn't make you the worst of all people. So just relax and don't be too awfully hard on yourself. Secondly, let me say to you, just as importantly, is that it is very much not okay to be there. It's not okay. It doesn't make you the worst, but don't sleep, beloved, on cold affections. The Proverbs say, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Do you want to be alive? Watch your heart and watch your affections. So while it doesn't make you strange to have grown too familiar with the greatest story that's ever been told, it does mean that your soul is in grave peril if you've grown cold to the Christmas story. If the good news of great joy, which is for all the people, sounds old hat to your soul, then we need the Spirit to move again in us and awaken our sense of wonder. That we could tremble once again at the idea that God means for us to be happy and nothing that we have ever done will stop him from making us so. God means for you to be happy and glad. And you're not going to thwart him. He's coming for you like the hound of heaven. So just relax and enjoy. One of the ways that we can restore our passion for Christmas is that, uh, that, that passion that we've all known is to relook at the promises as if for the first time. So to think again about the Christmas promises as if for the first time. The promises of God are like a great ship that can bear up the world. But they can often get so crusted over with barnacles of familiarity. The promises can get bogged down by the anchors of our own experience, our own theological education. That we no longer see those promises for what they're really saying. They just get bogged down with, yeah, I mean, I know that's what it says, but my experience has been 
Or I know that's what it says, but we all know better now that we've been theologically educated and those things are all relegated to the future. So what I want to do with you is I want to do a relook at an old promise in hopes that those of us who are cool would heat up in our affections and that those of us who are hot would become truly incendiary in our love for Emmanuel, for God with us. So the promise that we're going to look at comes from Isaiah 9, and like all Old Testament promises, its context is almost as important as the content. Okay? So if, you, if you're in Isaiah chapter 9, you're going to look in verse 6, and you're going to see, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's a word there that, that starts this verse. For. Because. Like, this is the promise, but the promise is based on something. There's something that came first. And so I want to think with you about what came first. In Isaiah chapter 6, so you can feel free to turn to your left, Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord in the temple. Let's read this together in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, says Isaiah, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole, listen to me, heaven Or the whole what? The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. This is marvelous. Isaiah, after seeing this, says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, says the prophet of God. The best thing about Isaiah was his mouth, because from his mouth was declared the word that God had given to him. And of all of the things that Isaiah could say, this is where I stink the most in the presence of a holy God. He says, my mouth. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Yahweh of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, that uncleanness, my lips. He touched it and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then Isaiah hears. So he's, he sees God. He repents. He's been, uh, he's been atoned. His sin has been atoned for. And now he can hear the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? This is the great missionary passage. God says, who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah, raising his hand like Hermione Granger, says, then I said, here I am. Send me. I want to go. And we would all say the same thing. I want to go. I want to deliver your message. Here's what God sends him to say. Go. Say to this people, keep on hearing. Do not understand. Keep on seeing. Do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, that's some terrible 
commission. Hey, prophet, I want you to go and I want you to tell your people my words. Nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to believe what you say. Yours is going to be a cosmic fail in ministry. That's Isaiah 6. Thank you kindly, Lord. Isaiah 7 is another downer, the next next context. Isaiah 7. The unbelieving, so there's some history here, the unbelieving Syrians and the idolatrous northern sister kingdom of Israel have come to make war against Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the kingdom of Judah. Judah was the most faithful between Israel and Judah. But now northern Israel is in league with Syria and they've come to Judah to make war and David make war with David's kingdom that has one of David's sons sitting on the throne. Okay, but the Davidic king of Judah was a first rate idolatrous turd named Ahaz. I just want you to listen to a description. The first description we're given of the king uh, of the son of David named Ahaz. Listen to this. This is second Kings 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his sons as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So Ahaz, your Davidic king, is being attacked. And, but, but he is a king who has taken Davidic sons, sons who might just be the coming Messiah, might just be in the line of the coming promised king, And he's taken them and he's put them on the bronze hands of Molech in worship to a demon. That's your king. Now think what it would be like if you were a faithful Jew in Jerusalem during this time. You have two wicked nations attacking your own home nation, but you aren't really sure which of the three is worse. Right? The bad guys have come, but we're the bad guys too. See if that sounds familiar. You can't protest to God in prayer that some unrighteous nation is coming against the righteous nation because your own beloved Judah is led by a baby burning idolater. You don't have a moral high ground. My brother sent me a text this week and he goes, oh man, did you just hear what the FBI director just said? We have an alarming number, an unprecedented number of military age Chinese men coming into our country over the border. And he's, and he's terrified. And I'm like, man, that is really scary. But you know what? I'm not sure that the military-aged Chinese men coming over the border are worse than our FBI director. Like, like is, is that wicked nation so much worse than ours? Like, no, we don't. We, we're, we're in the same boat as a, um, as a Jewish person in the, in the days of Ahaz. But then surprising everyone in the world in Isaiah 7. In the midst of all of your own king's paganism, God comes through Isaiah to give a promise. He says in verse 10, chapter 7, verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God comes to show that he's still, because of his covenant keeping promises, 
despite Ahaz's idolatry, he's still with the nation. He's still going to bless them. And so he says, I'll prove it to you. Ask me a sign. Just ask for a sign as high as heaven, as deep as hell. God has not forsaken his people, even in their idolatry. And just as we're about to worship God and say, thank you for your mercy. We hear about the unimaginable grace of God towards sinners. And then we hear our own king in classic politician practice, pretending to be a faithful man before God. He says his response is not, thank you, God, for being merciful. Here's the sign I would like. What he says is, oh, no, I will not ask a sign. I will not put the Lord your God to the test. Good grief, you shout to yourself. God gives us grace and our idiot king wants to pretend like he's a guy that deserves it. It would be like God pronouncing a Christmas pardon on our country and hearing our president say something like, well, God bless America. I knew he would reward us for how pious we have been as we've slaughtered our young and subjugated our poor. Surely in the midst of like God giving grace and giving an offer of promise and then seeing this pride come again from this idolatrous king, surely God is going to change his mind and say, never mind. But he doesn't. It's at this moment the Lord gives his own sign to a political ruler that is dead in his transgression and ignorance. God says to him, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call and and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the promise is that by the time that baby is grown up, the kings that are at your doorstep will be totally gone. That's Isaiah seven. God gives grace when his people are at their very worst. But. Just as we're about to rest in the hope that God's grace will overcome our nation's idolatrous treachery, here comes Isaiah 8. And the essence of Isaiah 8 is you find out that the southern kingdom of Judah that God has been gracious to are now imitating the idolatry of the Syrians and the northern nation of Israel. So just as you're about to rest in the hope that God's grace will overcome your own idolatrous treachery, Isaiah 8 comes, which is a description of Judah trying to imitate the the paganism of Israel and Syria because they were some little bit stronger and wealthier nations. And God's response in Isaiah chapter 8 is to raise up the Assyrians, that hell on wheels, conquer through terrorism, reign through torture country, which would flow on into your beloved country of Judah. That's Isaiah 8. Don't fear the terror at your doorstep because I'm bringing something so much worse. That's Isaiah 8. And so, just as we all are about to crawl into our grave and give up once for all any hopes that there would be peace with God, and listen to me, peace on earth. Just as that is obviously, it cannot happen. We're watching Isaiah 6, we'll never listen to God's word. Isaiah 7, he rescues, we don't care. We still imitate paganism in Isaiah 8. Surely there's no hope. Just as we're about to renounce that dream forever as little more than a pie in the sky daydream, God speaks again in Isaiah 9, 1 through 11. Listen to his words. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the northern kingdom of Israel where this paganism was coming from. But in the latter days, those are the days of Christ, From from Isaiah's perspective, the latter days are the days when Christ is born. In the latter days, in the latter time, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How has he made Galilee glorious? I don't know. That's the lake that Jesus walked on water there and gave us the Sermon on the Mount there and did most of his ministering there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Christ comes into the synagogue at Capernaum, this place. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and they are glad um, when the, uh, and they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. <clears throat> for every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For, do you see the context now? For all of this, Um, All of this sin and all of this rebellion and all of this idolatry and we've constantly never heard. We've constantly shaken our fist at God and yet God still sends the Redeemer. This is the promise. This is the Christmas promise. No matter how bad it's been, God still intends to come. Now the question is, what does God intend to do? What does he promise these pagan people who will never listen to him? Here's what he says in verse six. For to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh will do this. That's the promise. The context of Isaiah 9, listen to me, is entirely earthly and political. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what God is doing in heaven. It has everything to do with what God is going to do in the earth. This is the promise, which is the point of Christmas. It was God's good pleasure to bring heaven to earth. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This all started with Christ and will continue spreading through all those who have been recreated and redeemed in him. So I want to look at the promise bit by bit with you. It won't take long and it will be glorious for to us. A child is born to us. A son is given. No longer is God offering signs just to the idolatrous kings that in their pride can't even get out of their own way. Now he's giving the sign to us, to all of us, to all the people. And the sign to us is another child that will be born to another virgin. So the the first time was a real time in Isaiah's day. And it was a, a prototype of what would come. And this son, the government, will be on his shoulder. No more will we suffer under the judgment of God because the man with the highest authority in our land is the man with the bloodiest hands in the land. This child to be born was born the king of the Jews and therefore the king of the world. That's what the, the Magi say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And that's the irony. 
You've got Gentiles coming asking for the Jewish king so they can worship him. And the Jewish kings don't even understand. The the Jewish nation doesn't even understand. Jesus was born king of the Jews and therefore he is the king of the entire world. He didn't come to participate. He came to confiscate the nations. Whoever this child is, he was born to rule this earth. Not just your Christian heart and mind. Not just our Sunday mornings. Not just the lives of our church. Not just the U.S. of A. This Christ was born into the world to be Lord for every Arab and every Asian and every Islander and every African and every secularist from Europe and America. Every Hispanic and every other distinct people group I don't know how to name or pronounce. Jesus came to be Lord of the nations. And all God's people said, Amen. And His name, so unto us a a child is born, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Have you ever thought how wonderfully helpful it would be if God in heaven would just open His mouth already and say something to us so that we could know exactly who He is? We could know Him. We could know ourselves. We could know the world. Well, guess what? He did exactly this when at Christmas, His eternal word took on human flesh. He is our wonderful counselor because he isn't just able to tell us about the word of God like so many prophets have done. He's not like Isaiah. I can hear the word of God and then deliver it to people. No, not like that at all. This child born to us is the word of God made flesh. When you hear him, you hear God. When you see him, you see God. When he comes, God comes. You need the Christ and you need no other word from God. He is the wonderful counselor. And this wonderful counselor is also called mighty God. It was spoken of him in the book of Micah that his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Whoever this child is, he is very God of very God. If Christ is not God, then Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Matthew and John and Paul And everybody else in the Bible, including Jesus Christ, will burn eternally in a devil's hell because they have all ascribed to Christ what can only be ascribed to God himself. Namely, worship and honor and dominion and authority and creation ex nihilo and eternality, divine self-existence. All of these things are ascribed to Christ who is mighty God. Either Christ is mighty God or he is the worst man to have ever lived. So pick one. A good teacher, he cannot be. A good prophet, he cannot be. He is mighty God or he is vilest sinner. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. His name shall be called, listen to this, everlasting father. Literally, father forever. That's his name. Father forever. Oh, you broken and orphaned soul. This Christ comes to be your father forever. The one who, listen to me, the one who did to us what all of our fathers did to us. The one who made you without your permission. He made you without your permission. And the one who named you without your say-so. The one who fixed you with his love before you ever knew you were a you. Christ is your father Forever, And that is why he puts no asterisk beside the promises to never leave you, to never forsake you, but to be with you always. 
to not leave you as orphans, but to come to you and take up his residence in you. These are not the words of a master to a slave that may step out of line and lose his privilege. These are the words of the undying loyalty that fathers have to their sons and to their daughters. You are mine and it'll never change. I don't care what you do. Jesus Christ was born to be your good father forever. So if your dad blew it, then bless him anyway, honor him anyway, because you have a better one in Christ. And in Christ, your new and better father, you will never be let down and you will never be left alone. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. That is the Prince of Shalom. And what does it mean if you are called the Prince of Persia? It means you're the one who rules in Persia. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? It means that he is the one who rules peace. He rules by peace. He rules by bringing peace. Shalom perfection, the eradication of evil and the perfection of the very good of creation's pre-fall state. This is what Jesus came to establish once again on the earth. And yes, brothers and sisters, he will establish it on this earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So stop, stop. Oh, compromised Christian, stop explaining this away as something that will happen one day in heaven. These are earthly promises that Christ will make good on in this world. Of his government and of peace, they will both be like leaven, working through a lump, like a seed growing, slow but sure, and absolutely unstoppable. Paul says he must reign until he has made his enemies a footstool for his feet. He is reigning now, and his enemies are coming willingly. Psalm 2, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, said the father to the son of David. Well, ask he did, and to him belong all the nations of the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth will one day be given to me, said the resurrected Christ. Fix it, Christian. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Wait no longer. The lion of the tribe of Judah reigns. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever. All the rebellion you see is nothing more than his kindness in desiring all to come willingly and to know his grace. Or it is the letting out of enough rope for the nations to hang themselves with. His rule in this earth is not threatened by man's rebellion. He who sits in the heavens, namely Jesus Christ himself, still laughs at rebellious nations. He still speaks to them in fury. He still terrifies them in his wrath. And in his rule, he says to them once again, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is more zealous for the Lord, his father, than we can possibly imagine in all of our spiritual lethargy. He has never waxed cool in his affections for his father. All of these promises will come to this ground as sure as Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the one who spoke the world into being in the beginning. 
He is the one who remade the world by his becoming a man and being what all men should have been. Merry Christmas, Christ has conquered. But let us also remember that this victory of Christ in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, and ascension to rule, all of this was done in kindness towards us. He is not merely flexing his glory over all rebels. He is a father showing his strong arm to his children so that they know he will never drop them. We, brothers and sisters, we are firmly held in the hands that made the world and remade the world. And if ever once he lays a hold of you, he will never let you go. Merry Christmas. He has conquered for you. He has been given as head over all things to the church. So fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, a kingdom that can be tasted right here at the table and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is where heaven reigns on earth. This is where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where his name is hallowed. This is where his body is gathered. This is where his spirit ministers. And this is where it starts and it spreads everywhere. This is where forgiveness and fellowship and intimacy with Christ is at its height. Therefore, if you would be filled with Christmas joy, this is where you should be. So come to Christ. You are most welcome. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister to us at this table. That you would help us to know that these are promises that concern us intimately this day. They concern our affections. They concern our hope for the world. They concern us as we look at all of the future men and women in this church and know that they're going to they're be raised in a world over which... King Jesus reigns. God, give us the hope and the joy of knowing that to be the case. And Lord, as we come and as we eat and drink in remembrance of the greater exodus that you worked on our behalf, by your broken body and by your shed blood, we ask that you would commune with us. We ask that you would drive out any remaining sense of guilt or sin or shame, for you came to destroy the works of the devil to deliver us from fear. You came to make us glad. And so, Lord, would you be the minister of gladness at the table today? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.